Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 20 of Compliance Time. Guesting the episode is Alexander Dill, a Chicago-based scholar, university and in-house instructor and advisor specializing in financial regulation, model risk management and general risk management and compliance. He teaches at top US universities, at UCLA, in the School of Law and Anderson School of Management and in the University of Chicago's Financial Mathematics program. His courses span a broad range of areas involving the financial markets, banking and capital markets regulation, corporate governance and risk management, model risk management, and compliance in financial institutions. He provides in-house instruction to and advises financial firms on trends in financial regulation and issues specific to their business. As a compliance officer at Moody's Investors Services, Alexander designed the rating compliance function in 2003 following the Enron and other accounting scandals that had resulted in a multi-notch downgrade. With professional experience in Moody's and the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, Alexander's research and writing focus is on the intersection of capital markets and the banking system um, and their regulatory and supervisory frameworks from an economic perspective. In this episode, there are many resources in the show notes, so make sure to check those out. And now let's hear from Alexander. Hello, Alexander, and welcome to Compliance Time. We are very happy to speak with you today and to uh, hear about your experience and what you do. Um, So welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here to discuss uh, my views on compliance and my own experiences. That would be amazing. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in compliance. Certainly. Um, so I, uh, I sort of see myself as uh, like straddling two, two areas, um, academics and the business world. That's kind of characterized um, my life uh, since I started my educational career. In, um, in the graduate school. Um, and what I think is that actually adds value because I get into the kind of substantive areas of compliance. Um, you know, I read academic areas. Um, and then I combine that with my experience in compliance, which um, we can get to this later, but I was at one of the big three uh, rating companies, that's Moody's Investors where I was a compliance officer. So do you want me to go more into my career? Yes, of course, please. Tell us more about the compliance perspective part of your career. Yeah, so just to kind of get back to how I started. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the academic part, I was actually training to be a Russian historian. So I was in PhD programs in Russian history, but I quickly saw that I wanted to do more in the business world. Um, so th- I gravitated kind of by my natural interest to the, a legal career. So I eventually went to Wall, Wall Street as a corporate, uh, corporate lawyer. 
Um, from there, I then went into uh, the government. So uh, at the Securities Exchange Commission, I was there for six years. Uh, for half of that time, three years, I was in the Chief Counsel's Office of uh, Market Regulation. Um, to give you a background at the SEC at, and also at the CFTC, there's several divisions. Um, at the SEC, for example, they have corporate finance, um, investment management, you know, like the mutual funds. So I was in trading and markets, which is what it's called now. Um, and then I moved into, for the last few years, I was a branch chief there and I covered um, anti-manipulation regulation of securities uh, offerings like stabilization transactions by underwriters and that sort of thing. I'd have to say my, the kind of a big part of my career was at Moody's Investors. So I moved on from from uh, the SEC to uh, Moody's uh, in 1996. And there I was there for 19 years. Um, I would say I had three basic jobs there. Um, I think highly of the company, they really um, emphasized mobility, flexibility. Um, it's a very diverse organization, uh, but I'm not here to pitch the company. I just <laughs> thought that I got a lot out of it. Um, so I started as a bond rater, um, structured finance. And then uh, the big part why I'm here today, I think, is I was uh, in compliance for three years. And what I did there is um, it was after Enron and WorldCom, uh, the, the accounting scandals in the early 2000s. And you may or may not recall, but Moody's S&P, you know, the rating industry got some really uh, black, black, uh, black um, marks or um, multiple downgrades uh, just previous to bankruptcy of these companies. So it didn't look good. So that's when uh, Moody's was proactive. They wanted to create a compliance function separate from the legal in-house, which traditionally is where you know, the, comp the compliance function is housed. So that's where they actually split off the compliance function uh, from uh, the general counsel's office at Moody's Corp. Um, so that's what I did for three years. And it was fascinating because there was no precedent. Uh, there was no like white papers out there. You know, what is a ratings compliance function? Um, I, you know, we'll probably get into this later, but there's a big conflict of interest in rating agencies. And uh, that is because it's an issuer pays model. Which Basically, is in your role, you had to define your um, compliance and the perspective um, for, for the agency. Am I correct? Uh, you mean define what compliance is? Mm -hmm. for, for Moody's, for the, the credit. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, you know, one of my big things is, you know, understand what the business, um, it's kind of obvious, but I think a lot of people kind of miss, miss it. Understand what the business is. You know, how do they make their money? Uh, what's the business model? And so, for example, for Moody's um, and S&P and so on, it's the issuer. The issuer pays um, for their rating. And it's like, you know, what if you went to a newspaper um, and you were, um, you know, a subject of an article 
and you paid the newspaper to write that article. <laughs> so obviously that's a conflict, but it's really what the rating agencies do. So, you know, that was a big topic when I was in compliance at Moody's. So yeah, in terms of defining the compliance function, it's kind of, um, it's got to be tied to, it's a unique function in each company. And so you look at the business model. And so that's what we had to start from scratch. Um, I was mainly involved in designing a compliance system for the ratings process to make it more objective, you know, the rating committees and things like that. Does that kind of answer your question? Yes, that, that's, uh, that's great. Thank you. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I cut you probably when you were explaining about your experience. <laughs> is there is there more? Yeah, not too much more. I mean, I um, uh, then I moved on to a research group at Moody's where I headed the group um, and they put out so-called covenant quality reports um, for high yield bonds. And so uh, that was a lot of fun. It was kind of a startup company and a large public company. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, I was running the show and I, I, um, you know, we got a lot of traction in the market to give, it was separate from ratings, um, uh, but, uh, it was for, you know, high yield bonds, uh, covenants are very important. So we actually had a, like a quantitative system to, to rate those, um, the covenant quality. So let's see, I think that's, um, then since then I, I left Moody's in 2015 and I'm uh, now uh, teaching at UCLA, both at the business school and the law school, as well as uh, at the University of Chicago. And the focus of the course courses are, is financial regulation, uh, compliance and risk management. That but, That's really great. Um, and now teaching is so important. You know, when you started, you were, uh, a you are studying for uh, you are studying Russian history, but now people can study compliance <laughs> at <laughs> universities and at school. I am always uh, fascinated by the different backgrounds that people have before entering into compliance, and how almost any kind of background can be suitable for <laughs> compliance. <laughs> exactly, I think you hit it on the head. What one of my things I wanted to just mention is that. Um, it's a fascinating field exactly because for that reason, you draw on, you know, your sort of psychology, your knowledge of human motivation. Um, it's, it's really pretty essential, even if you're not a lawyer to understand the regulatory framework. Um, and more specifically, what are the regulatory expectations of, of the um, particular agencies that, um, you know, regulate the company? Um, so that's very important. So. You know, and there, there people can come from the FBI. So one of my, uh, one of my bosses in compliance at Moody's was a former FBI uh, agent. So, you know, it, so that, that, that's why I think it can be so interesting. Um, and we can talk about it. Yeah. That, that, that's great. And, uh, please share with us some of the projects that you are, uh, project initiatives, what you are currently involved in. Sure. Um, I guess first and foremost, I, I, I'm a book author, so we can talk about that later if you like. But I oh, yes. uh, published almost a year ago, it was um, actually more than a year ago, Bank Regulation, Risk Management and Compliance um, by Rutledge. And it's um, 
has been very successful. Uh, and I just submitted a manuscript for anti-money laundering uh, regulation compliance. As I mentioned, I teach at two uh, schools, actually three, if you include the business school at UCLA. I've also just this year launched a uh, website um, where, you know, I can I collect a lot of the articles that I write. Um, I highlight my book. Um, it's financialmarketreg.com. Um, and I've also started a, a, a business where in addition to teaching at the university level, I'm um, quite willing to teach um, in, corp- in, in the corporate setting as a corporate in-house instructor on the same topics, you know, financial regulation and so on. Um, so I'm very happy to do that. I'm, I'm, um, I'm um, you know, welcome to people um, approaching me on that. Um, the other thing is um, I... Have done this in the past. I, like for a hedge fund, they invited me in to talk about uh, financial regulatory trends. Um, so, in particular, I was talking about the Trump deregulatory um, program for financial regulation, and obviously, it's a hot topic now because we have a new administration coming in. And it certainly looks like they're going to uh, reintroduce some of the regulatory um, provisions that were, shall we say, lightening up under the Trump administration. So I talked about that. And thirdly, I um, I interview uh, with the financial news media. Uh, this year, early this year, I um, talked to the Global Risk Regulator, which is a Financial Times uh, specialized publication. Um, last year, almost a year ago, I published an op-ed article in the Financial Times. So that's uh, kind of the third thing I'm, I'm involved in. That's really great. I will include into the podcast show notes the links to your website. And if you can share with me any of the other articles that you mentioned, like sure. the Financial Times or any any resources, I would include those into the show notes. Um, we are going to talk most certainly about your books because um, the, the new one that's coming next year sounds really interesting and exciting. So I would like to request a preview, but <laughs> before <laughs> that, <laughs> to to um, to talk about um, your experience from your view and from your experience, what are the most important. Um, what is most important for compliance in institutions like Moody's or other financial institutions? Maybe something relating to background skills, specific knowledge that it's needed. Sure, sure that's a great question. Um, just in general, in my research for this book and in my experience, the for anti-money laundering uh, regulation and their expectations. It's you know you're talking about FinCEN. Um, you're talking. You're talking about the primary regulators of like banks. So you're talking about Office of Control of the Currency, Federal Reserve, FDIC. Uh, there's a whole bunch of regu- regulators there. So very important to understand what their um, expectations are. And I think one of the key areas to look at are enforcement action. Um, you know, there, in the first part of the 2010s, um, starting like 2012 on into 2015, 
there were a series of multi-billion dollar uh, fines against the large uh, banks. And one of the key areas that the regulators, and this includes the Justice Department, um, most importantly, the biggest fines that been in uh, criminal prosecutions, deferred, I should say, deferred prosecutions. That's, that's almost always how it ends up. And one of the big things is the big gap between re- resource allocation by the board of directors and senior management and, um, you know, the, the risk management framework. Um, it's fine to have a very aggressive uh, business strategy. Um, in, in a lot of cases, this is, means foreign correspondence banking. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very high risk area. And so what the, what the enforcement authorities determine in their, their findings of fact is that these companies almost every single, in every single case, they just didn't have the, um, capacity. They didn't have the staffing, risk management, compliance across the board. Um, and it's a high cost to do that. If you go, excuse me, if you go into these, um, these, these emerging markets, you really have to build up a sophisticated risk management and compliance infrastructure. Very costly. So that's one of the main things I would point out. Um, to be specific, um, and I can talk more about this, but I don't want to make this a <laughs> lecture. That's great. I just wanted to add to that. You mentioned 2010 enforcement actions. Recently, I have found a very nice website, which summarizes by value and by different bank, and you get the sources to them of all 2020 enforcement actions. Uh, It's pretty well organized. I published it somewhere on LinkedIn. I will try to uh, find it out, maybe to add yeah, it, it looks it looks very well organized. I don't know who did it. I, I don't think it was some kind of organization. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I, I will check it out and try to, to include it also here. I posted on the on LinkedIn about it. So so yeah, I have more here if you if you wish. I can talk about other areas. So um so you know my my question is um kind of looking, you know, as kind of an academic, but also as a um person that was in the practice of uh, compliance. My question, why? Why did you have this kind of systemic problem in the industry? We're talking really about the banking industry. And I developed this theory of the compliance paradox. Um, It's in my first book on bank regulation. And I explored it greater in greater depth, depth in the uh, AML book that's coming out next year. And what is that? It's basically focusing on the uh, business model of banking, which is depositing uh, other um, payment services where there's uh, direct contact with the customers and also the money launderers. And so there, because that is uh, one of the key indicators of profit in the banking, it's, you know, what they earn because of low cost funding with deposits and the high yielding assets and loans is it motivates them to, you know, open these accounts. Uh, but what does FinCEN require? It wants them to closely monitor these accounts and in the extreme, not even open them. So uh, especially mm-hmm. for the terrorist uh, financing suspicion. So 
that is a big problem. Another part of this paradox is the um, law enforcement objective of um, AML regulation. Uh, I don't think it's emphasized enough in the literature. It's very external to the banks, to their, you know, their mindset. Um, basically, you could argue that uh, the government is deputizing uh, the banks to, to be the first leg of their investigation. And so it's just not, it doesn't really dovetail with, you know, unlike bank capital regulation where the banks, yeah, they do need a certain amount of capital to protect their, you know, their franchise. Uh, but there's just not that, even that kind of alignment between the interest of the government and, you know, the interest of the banks. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the paradox, then what's your view about the FinCEN files and how they were presented in the media in light, like considering the, the, your findings in the framework of the paradox? So, so what was uh, the first part of that question again? What? Um, uh, considering the, the paradox that you mentioned that the, the law enforcement is expecting banks to be acting sort of on the first line of identification of financial crime. Uh, what's your view on the linked files? Do banks actually do enough, do well with um, uh, compliance? Or maybe not, <laughs> considering talk- on all the leaked reports. So you're talking about the FinCEN files, uh, quote unquote? Yeah, the leaks. Yeah, I think um, it was kind of overblown by the media, to be honest. Um, the, these are, you know, they, just because a bank has a suspicion that their uh, customer is, is uh, you know, in wrongdoing, doesn't mean they cut them off. Um, they're monitoring them. On the other hand, there is, you know, it's it's not that simple. Of course, uh, as I mentioned in the paradox, there's a big profit motive there to keep up the relationship. So mm-hmm. some of the banks may actually think that if they keep reporting this, and there is this um, concept of continuing um, SARS, suspicious activity report, uh, filing with FinCEN, as long as they keep, you know, continuing to monitor this suspicious person, um, they can keep, you know, doing business with them. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that is, uh, that is a, another area where I think the compliance paradox kind of overrides the um, meeting the, object, the law enforcement objective. Mm-hmm. Yes, there seems to be indeed this notion that if you continue reporting, so you're doing the right thing, right? Because you you did your job, your compliance work, you identified it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so you report it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your books. You mentioned uh, bank regulation, risk management and compliance. Mm -hmm. And the second one expected in 2021, anti-money laundering regulation and compliance, key problems and practice areas. Can you please give us a short summary of uh, the published one, of the published book? And um, yeah, intended readership maybe or key problems uh, that that you, Mm -hmm. you are discussing. Sure. Yeah. Let me kind of sketch out. The, you know, the, to make it easy, the because um, I was uh, the bank regulation book was hot off the press, and then I immediately 
start with a book on anti-money laundering and um, probably not a great idea because I was kind of exhausted with the first book, but um, I eventually submitted the uh, anti-money laundering book uh, last month. So that's in the works. That's with Edward uh, Elgar. But anyways, the basic approach is the same. Um, Now I've taught in law school, I've taught uh, business organizations, that has to do with corporate governance. Um, so that's kind of my starting point. So I um, think it's very important for the practitioner in bank regulation and AML to understand the uh, corporate governance fundamentals, you know, the role of the board of directors. It may sound very simple, but some people may not have gone to law school and taken taken this course, uh, it's usually elected at law school. So even a lawyer would have taken. But anyways, the first part of bank regulation is taken up with corporate governance. So I get into the um, role of board of directors, senior management, uh, line management, um, uh, risk management, the control functions, which are uh, typically seen as compliance, risk management, and internal audit. So what their respective roles are, um, I also talk about the three lines of defense, uh, which is a key concept in compliance. And um, what is that? Just in brief, it's the first line is business management. Uh, That was the uh, 3LOD was developed after the financial crisis by the industry. Uh, There was a abysmal failure in risk management leading up to the financial crisis. So it was kind of proactive by management to, by the companies to the financial institutions to develop this model. And now it's pretty universal, uh, at least among the larger uh, banks. Um, So the first line is the most essential. That's why it's the first line. That's business management. They have hiring and firing um, authority. They can discipline. So they should really own the risk that they create. This is a risk management concept. Uh, the second line are the control functions and the third line is internal audit. Um, they, you know, they look for compliance, are the internal controls effective and so on. So I have a whole section in that book as well as in my, um, book to come, the AML book on corporate governance on, uh, three lines of defense. It, it, what I see is it gives practitioners and students um, an important tool in understanding. I think it's important to get a contextual, holistic mm-hmm. understanding. You know, where does compliance uh, reside in a company? Um, uh, so you can't really talk about its roles until you understand its position in the corporate hierarchy and corporate governance. Um, so that's kind of a key thing. And then the second part of the bank regulation and risk management book is uh, getting into the four core areas of bank regulation. So that's consumer protection, AML, microprudential regulation, that's, you know, the typical bank capital regulation for all banks, and then macroprudential, which is Mitigation of systemic risk, you know, financial stability. So it covers those four areas. 
And then it has a section on the future of compliance and risk management, uh, where oh. I look at you know blockchain and things like that. So That's who's the readership? Um, I'm sorry. That's great. Um, just one very quick question, because you're mentioning the three lines of defense and the future. Um, since you said that this model was created during the financial crisis some time ago, I, I, I think, do you think in the future there will be a change to that model or so far it seems that it's working for the financial institutions? Well, as a matter of fact, I just um, uh, wrote an article. I can give you that link too. It's on the Goldman Sachs one MDB uh, scandal. And there was, um, as you know, there was a Justice Department settlement, something like uh, 2.9 billion. Um, and that, um, I talked about the three lines of defense. And, you know, I certainly don't have an inside view. Um, I'm not an insider to Goldman Sachs, but by looking at the, filings, uh, you know, the GPA, the deferred prosecution agreement, and so on, I think it really had a broken uh, three lines of defense. And it was broke, broken at its weakest link, you know, obviously the first line. Um, they, so I, you know, I invite people to look at that. I could go into bigger detail. Yeah. That, that's great. I will include that. I think I have the link to the Goldman Sachs article, so um, I will put it in the show notes. Um, and you started talking about the readership uh, of of the book. Yeah, I guess every writer likes to say that they have a unique contribution, but let me just uh, kind of summarize what I think this contributes. Um, first of all, it's like a, a bank regulation book now, as well as the... Um, AML book. It's a compact volume and it really covers all of bank regulation. It's a very complicated topic. You know, you have the four areas I, I talked about in addition to the corporate governing aspects. Um, it really gets into a certain amount of detail on each. For example, um, in the area on systemic risk, I talk about the Basel committees, um, uh, guidance on uh, data aggregation and reporting, risk data aggregation and reporting, BCBS uh, 239. So that's just one example. I mean, it, 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 the reader has at their fingertips, you know, all the different areas of bank regulation and what the compliance and risk management implications are. So, so number one, it's like a compact volume. And number two, it's, as I said, it, I think it's unique in a couple of ways in combining uh, really a, a treatment of the regulatory framework uh, with the risk management and uh, compliance uh, expectations, uh, you know, as well as the, um, you know, the corporate governance uh, framework that is so essential in making sure that, you know, you're uh, meeting regulatory expectations in the first place. And along the same lines, can you please give us a brief overview of the new book on AML? Yeah. Sure. So um, it was uh, really a great pleasure once I kind of uh, went on vacation after the first book to uh, <laughs> to go into great depth because there is a chapter in the bank book on <clears throat> AML, and that's um, that's chapter ten. It's but it's uh, you know one chapter, but I now had the opportunity 
dive into the whole area and, um, you know, just shake it for what it's worth. So, uh, what I do have, uh, the introductory section is also in corporate governance, but the, one of the first chapters is on the international standard setting by the FATF. Um, so I think it's important. Again, my whole sort of teaching approach is to give a, a big picture in order to fit the components into that picture. So I think there is, it's like banking regulation. You have, excuse me, you have the financial action task force in AML, whereas you have the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision and Bank Regulation. And they're both standard setters internationally. You have all the key countries that are members of those organizations. And that lends a, a good amount of uniformity to, to the regulatory structure throughout the world. And why is that important? It's important for uh, cross-border investigations. You're speaking the same language uh, as the U.S. and the U.K. or European Union. So that facilitates uh, sharing of, you know, suspicious information, you know, information on suspicious transactions. So that's one chapter. And then... Um, there is a very prescriptive element to AML regulation, reporting, information sharing. Um, and, you know, and then there's a, uh, what people call the risk based, which is a huge part of AML, the risk based approach. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, a couple of chapters on compliance programs. And then there's a chapter on, uh, screening for sanctions, violations, or targets, and also suspicious activity screening, um, or I should say monitoring. Um, I, I even talk about Rule 504, which is a New York State rule that, that requires um, companies that are covered to you know, have a very robust uh, screening and monitoring programs. So yeah, uh, the... Um, Prescriptive versus the risk-based areas. So, you know, as you probably know, there, there is a sentiment in the industry that it's easier to have a rules-based, you know, very prescriptive regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, you can check the box and, um, you're done with, uh, meeting the expectations. But yeah. AML, because they have this law enforcement objective, Another word for that is an outcome um, expectation, which is a suspicious activity report. And that's the cornerstone of this regime uh, that can be is very useful for law enforcement purposes and investigation. So you can't just check the box. Um, and so what I found in doing work on the book is that Increasingly, there was a greater emphasis on risk-based um, compliance and uh -huh. risk management. So important to look at your firm's unique set of risks and uh, make sure you can uh, identify the key uh, money laundering and financing terrorism risks and then design the appropriate internal controls and policies and procedures. Um, so that's what uh, the regulators look at, um, particular FinCEN. And that was, is what comes up in enforcement. 
That, that sounds very interesting. Uh, I am sure there will be a lot of readers that would find this very, very useful uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the programs are currently built on ticking boxes that that's not always sufficient. Um, I, I do have one other thing to add there. So, yeah, sure. Um, again, it's, it, I emphasize uh, the bigger picture, and so it's important to even if you're doing compliance, you need to understand risk management. That's what I teach my classes. Um, because there is a very close interaction, uh, mm -hmm. important um, that they both understand what the other is doing. And what is um, money laundering risk, but uh, compliance risk? So that is a risk management issue and it's a compliance issue. So you need those two groups to work together and understand uh, what he, the other is doing. So uh, I come up with that also in these books, um, uh, pretty important. Um, yeah, that, that does sound important and something that compliance and risk management should do together rather than on their own, with <laughs> uh, their own functions. Um, then what do you think are the necessary changes which would address some of the key problems in the field? Okay, um, just as I was about to submit my money laundering book, anti-money laundering book, I should say anti, not money laundering, um, FinCEN came out with a, what I call a concept release. And uh, so I kind of took a pause and I read through the release, uh, it was in September, I think, like September 7th or something. And um, I can just say a few words about that. That is uh, also, I think it gives your audience a preview of what we can expect. Uh, it's a very important release, I think. Um, and it ties into what, you know, my, it ties into the law enforcement objective, which is a key theme in my writing. Um, so, and that is actually the basic thrust of this uh, concept release. Um, so first of all, uh, it's to make the law enforcement objective much more explicit than it is already in existing regulation. And they want to integrate it into uh, compliance programs of the firms that are covered. Um, there's also this concept of uh, strategic AML priorities, which, mm -hmm. and this is just a proposal for comment at this stage. It's not a proposed rule. So the idea is that FinCEN would every two years, because as you know, there's, uh, it's a fast paced um, area where criminal elements are devising new things all the time yeah. um, to get by the, you know, the existing controls. And so that's what their thought is to issue these strategic priorities um, and the firms would then bake them into their policies and procedures. So uh, very, very interesting things. Um, also, the rules would uh, define what an effective and reasonably designed AML compliance program is uh, for the first time. And actually, I would link that to the Trump administration's emphasis on, you know, greater kind of clarity and transparency. Um, uh, you know, at least I see that link here. Uh, so second, there's uh, the idea to make the pro compliance programs more flexible and adaptable to 
these emerging threats, the risk to that are created by a firm's business model. So, um, so for example, they you may not believe this, but risk assessments currently are not mandated. Um, so the proposal, the idea is still an idea, is for firms to is to mandate risk assessments. Um, it is a common industry practice, but to, to mandate them to whom? Pardon? To mandate them to whom? The the banks? To, to the firms that are covered. So the banks, uh, the I haven't mentioned this, but the core firms that are covered by AML regulation are banks and capital markets firms, mm-hmm. you know, like broker dealers. So yeah. those firms would have to do risk assessment. Uh, mm-hmm. The banks have been doing that for a long time. It's harder for the broker dealers out there to do that. Um, so that that's an interesting thing. Um, and then finally, they would um, uh, sort of system systematize the regulation, just make it more uniform, uh, coherent. And uh, one idea is to define uh, what a effective and, and reasonably designed compliance program is, Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of funny because up to now, the regulators are saying it's up to the firms because, you know, it's no one size fits all. That's the mantra, you know. Yeah. But now they want to sort of define it a bit better. So I I have a couple of other ideas in response to your question. So... Um, just to take off, you, you can see what's coming down the road with the spent and release. It will take a while, uh, for this to put into effect because it's a notice and comment. You know, probably I would give it at least two years. Um, uh, it's quite a change in uh, policy, but I think one of the most important things that firms can do is to Accept the fact that they have this law enforcement objective, that it's not really check the box compliance. Um, the emphasis is on a risk-based approach. Um, and then finally, I would mention on the regulatory side, and I don't have much hope for this, is it's a very fragmented uh, supervisory system. Um, industry critics, um, and I tend to agree with them, say, why don't we just have a kind of a central regulator like FinCEN, which has a a law enforcement objective. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whereas you have like the banking agencies, they try to shoehorn the law enforcement objective into a kind of a prudential regulation uh, framework. And I don't think it fits. Even these big multi-billion dollar fines have not really posed a risk to the you know, prudential, um, you know, health of, of, a, of a bank. So mm-hmm. that's my answers. <laughs> Thank you for that. It, it's really interesting. I haven't seen the FinCEN uh, document that you mentioned with the future update. So I will take a look on that <laughs> today probably. Sure. Um, and what lessons do you try to instill in your students in compliance uh, at UCLA? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think very broadly and, and what I've learned in my teaching career is to sort of, 
uh, talk in broad terms. And so I'm going to say there's like a two-part process to compliance. So mm -hmm. and in enforcement actions, I see this breakdown all the time. So you design the compliance policies and procedures. So there, you know, that's where like a risk assessment comes in. You try to understand where the risks are, work with risk management, and then um, develop uh, policies and procedures. And, and then the second part is enforcing uh, the implementation and enforcement um, phase of compliance. And so many times that's where it breaks down. Um, it, either the company has a well-defined regulatory framework of what policy and procedures are, you know, like, for example, in investment management, um, or they have to develop themselves, is so easy. So that's what, like, the DOJ calls cosmetic compliance. You know, <laughs> you have your policies and procedures, but what do you do with them? So uh, it, I, it's much harder to monitor, and that's where the first line of defense comes in, monitor, you know, um, enforce, um, fire is necessary, discipline. And that breaks down you now for, I think, the reasons we've talked about. Um, so um, th those are the two things I try to get across. And I always have a uh, lecture on risk management because I think it's so essential to understand what they do. Um, so. Do, do your students want to pursue and proceed with compliance after they graduate? Do, do, did you have graduates already or uh, not yet? Yeah, well, the, I, I've taught at a, a couple of places. So uh, my first experience in teaching was at Chicago Kent uh, School of Law, a college of law in Chicago, obviously. And um, they really emphasize compliance. They have a compliance program and certificate. So yeah, um, I was teaching their capstone course on compliance and um, many of them uh, went on to compliance. It's a very fine law school. Um, so that's where I kind of developed my curriculum and syllabus uh, for compliance. And then at UCLA, uh, I tried it for the first time last fall. Mm -hmm. and some of the students wanted to go into that area anyways. So uh, they just wanted to take a course. And um, so I met their expectations there. Um, there was one student, interesting, that found it very good, a very nice experience, but was sort of sizing up whether they wanted to go into compliance. And they ultimately decided not to. <gasps> We're still thankful. <laughs> they understood what it involved. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, I'm just—I was just interested because I, when I was studying, it was either not an option or, or not a popular option. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm curious if um, really the courses are something that uh, inspires students nowadays to join the profession. Um, but yeah, speaking speaking about students and future, <laughs> um, at Compliance Time, we always ask our guests for one last question about the uh, prediction and future of AML and compliance. I know that we spoke a little bit about that, but in summary, what do you think the future would look like for um, compliance? Well, it's a, it's a vast area, but and it's all like guesswork, right? Conjecture. Yeah. 
Um, I'll just say one thing. I, you know, there is this um, concept of singularity in artificial intelligence. Uh, what do I mean by singularity? It's this concept that at some point, I don't know, have you watched Westworld? Oh, yeah. So that, that um, it's a very, I just hope they do it again. It's such a great um, show, series. Anyways, they talk about singularity, this idea at some point, these machines will be so intelligent that there's really no difference. And, and then they take off, they go beyond human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that apply to AML compliance? I think my, that's my question. And I am very skeptical. Um, sure, maybe in some areas of human endeavor, but mm-hmm. uh, there's, it's, there's a human touch to compliance, which is very important. And I've, I've listened to uh, the, the ideas of senior risk professionals at these large banks, and they pretty much uniformly think it's just not going to happen where you can turn the switch and everything that's done by humans now in terms of deciding, mm-hmm. for example, whether the file of SAR will now be uh, a decision by, by a machine. I also don't think the regulators would um, like that because uh, it's, it's really a, a sort of a decision based on all the risks that the company has. And, um, if the regulators do, it will be a long time coming. Um, <laughs> so I could be proven wrong, but I don't think so in the next 10 or 20 years, to be honest. Yeah, may- maybe not at the stage of full automation and everything to be done by AI, but certainly there are fields that AI can uh, help. Uh, I have interviewed a couple of um, companies which... Uh, do exactly that and um while it does not eliminate the human contact with aml i think it really can help us with the time savings and organization and search for data because at least the ai has the capacity to do that much faster and read in more languages or uh, make less clerical errors (laughs) um so I think I think there is a lot of opportunity that can be accepted by the regulator. Absolutely. Um, so in my book that's about going to be published next year, I do talk about that. There, there is a lot of labor saving that you know goes into the um, due diligence area. You know the data, mm-hmm. um, data um, selection, and so on. And then um, you know then you feed it into your screening systems and, and so on. So absolutely, there's a lot of uh, area there where you can uh, be cost-effective. Thank you very much for your opinion and for your time and sharing with us your story and books. I'll try to include everything in the show notes so people can find it. Um, is it all right to include also your LinkedIn profile so people can oh, connect yeah. with you? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I invite people to to connect with me and uh, uh, in the compliance and risk management community. That's great. Thank you very much again. Okay, thank you. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website cmpltime.com. And don't forget, check out our new blog. Thank you. Till next week.